When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. My number one album, big shocker to me, also folklore. Whoa. Are you ready to dive into all things Taylor Swift? Good for a Weekend is the ultimate podcast for any Swifty. With new episodes dropping bi-monthly, as well as bonus episodes to give you real-time reactions to the latest rumors and news, it's your one-stop shop for all things T-Swift. We also love connecting with our fellow Weekenders, so be sure to connect with us on Instagram, Twitter, and or Discord to share all your Taylor thoughts. Good for a Weekend is available wherever you get your podcasts. I know. Folklore just is that like it's a perfect album it's the spark parade a podcast where i talk to amazing people about the art and culture that's shaped their lives i'm adam uns thanks for tuning in is that what you say about a podcast is that what anybody says about anything ever probably not anyway how the hell are you as always, that's not a rhetorical question. Please scream your answer right now. I don't care what you're doing or who you're with or where you are. I need to know how you are, and I need to know now. Thanks for complying. So, this week I had a lovely little chat with Tim Berlina, who is the world's number one ecologically friendly bearded drag lady. They do cabaret, they host the big bingo show at the Royal Vauxhall Tavern in London, and so much more! We talked about Timberlina's love for the Cockettes, a psychedelic queer hippie drag theater collective formed by the legendary Hibiscus in 1969. It's a great chat, folks. You'll learn a bit about queer history and who doesn't want to learn about that, right? Great. So, now, it's recently come to my attention that it is summertime, and summertime means movies. I've always loved blockbuster season. When I was little, I used to get really excited and read movie magazines to see, like, what movies were coming up in the summer. I was a real movie nerd. But there's a particular element of that that I really miss that doesn't seem to happen as much anymore, and that is the release of a movie theme song. You just don't come across that as much anymore, or at least it's not the same kind of thing. It's not the same kind of theme song that I'm thinking of. To me, the golden age of movie theme songs was the 80s. There were these, like, big, bold theme songs that captured the magic and adventure of seeing a movie on the big screen. Some of my favorite examples of songs that gave me that feeling when I saw them in movies are Stir It Up by Patti LaBelle, which was in Beverly Hills Cop 2, um, On Our Own by Bobby Brown, which is in Ghostbusters 2, maybe all the best theme songs are in sequels, we can talk about that in a different episode, and... The Goonies Are Good Enough by Cyndi Lauper from The Goonies. Obviously, fuck, I loved that so much when I was little. And I loved all of those songs because they felt so evocative of the experience of seeing the movies they were written for. I can remember sitting in the backseat of my parents' car, hearing those songs after I'd seen the films, and just feeling excited and remembering all the things I liked about the movies. There was also this broad emotional life in all those songs. For me, they all had this balance between melancholy and euphoria. They had defiance and joy, and I loved that too. There are countless other examples from the 80s, like... Rhythm of the Night by DeBarge, that was in The Last Dragon. 
And then huge, huge hit songs like Into the Groove by Madonna, which came from Desperately Seeking Susan. The list goes on and on and on. It makes me sad that the idea of a movie theme song has pretty much entirely fallen out of fashion. I'm sure there are some examples to the contrary, but on the whole, it's not nearly as prominent anymore. Those movie theme songs were a huge part of the experience of going to the movies for me as a child. And I miss the feeling of having such a strong connection between films and the songs written for them, or at least songs that were heavily associated with the movies they were in. So this is my campaign to bring back the movie theme song. So if you're listening to this and you have plans to make a movie, promise me that you'll commission a theme song. Do you promise? I'm going to assume that you've said yes. Yay! Okay, had enough of that? Good, great. Let's move along. Without further ado, here comes my chat with Tim Berlina about the Cockettes. So, the Cockettes. Yes. Uh, where do you remember where you heard about them first or your first experience of them? I had just started out as a performer back in 2002 and... I was performing in a punk band type thing, and I was the singer as a bearded drag lady. Mm. And with two bears, on either, one on either side of me playing guitars. <laughs> and somewhere in all of that mix, I think it must have been my dear friend David Mills said, oh, you must, you know, this is, this is you know, the coquettes are, you must be aware of the coquettes. Now, I am very interested in queer history and sort of lineages and tradition and creating an idea of sort of cultural history as a thread, you know, like as a family. Mm -hmm. These are my brethren. This is, this is the history that I've come through, you know. And, uh, and especially within drag, which, well, especially in the last decade, has been so saturated with RuPaul and a particular mm. type of drag. But anyway, 2002, my friend David Mills says, oh my God, you remind me of the Coquettes. You should check them out. And David Weissman, who was a friend of his, he said, he said uh, my friend David has this other friend called David Weissman. He said, my friend David is coming over from, I think he's from Seattle or Portland. He's a filmmaker. He's just made a film about the Coquettes. You should see that. We'll go and see the film. You'll meet, I'll introduce you to David and da 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 And so, of course, I saw this film and was just completely hooked. Mm -hmm. Having ostensibly gone to America in the first place to sort of broadened my idea of who I, my queer self was back in the 90s. And also with that, you know, hyper-idealized kind of fantasy of, of, you know, traveling across from New York to San Francisco, the kind of queer mecca, which I did, which was amazing. Mm -hmm. And so to discover this crazy, kooky, completely non-conforming group beheaded by the, the wonderful, uh, enigmatic uh, hibiscus was really super inspiring. And it was also inspiring because it was... You know, specifically for me, because it, as I mean, as completely shambolic as it kind of ended up being and was, that was kind of its purpose. It, it took the idea of queerness into every sort of sense of existence and living. And I always love when you find these moments in history where it's sort of like the first time that anybody's ever done this. And I think that as a, as a queer artist as well, certainly, it's always great to kind of find those moments in history where individuals have really said, you know, I cannot understand this society that we're living. Let's create, I'm going to create something that represents my day to day existence and challenge and references and want you know how i would like culture to be 
I just found, you know, they were so multifaceted, so multidimensional, and I found that great. And also the story is totally, you know, they were totally flawed. The whole story does not necessarily have a happy ending. And I quite like that too, because within that, they all have their moment. Um, mm -hmm. And they're super colourful, and, you know, Hibiscus was also, he was like an anti-war activist, and there's a picture of him. There's a famous picture, I can't remember what his full name is, um, when he's not Hibiscus. But he was an anti-war activist. I think he came from a very sort of um, middle class, possibly even New York, and sort of Upper West Side family. Don't quote me on that. I may be waking that up. Quite. He, he basically kind of ran away. And there's a famous picture, I think, during the early Vietnam War. Mm. And there's a guy who puts like a daisy in the rifle of, of a soldier's rifle at mm. a demonstration. And it transpires that that guy became hibiscus. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I just, I love that flow of history. And especially and the, coming at a time when the gay liberation movement was really just yeah. in its infancy and the totally. you know perception of gay people in the states i mean globally was yeah. quite negative and yes, having this group of people yes. who were not just being queer and living their lives openly but being as like outrageous and free and yeah. doing whatever the fuck they wanted and being totally unapologetic about it exactly. and not giving a shit about anybody's opinion exactly i forgot we can swear and we don't have to be okay <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> this is very sweary so just say yeah whatever you are there's no censorship here oh marvelous fantastic <laughs> i mean not that necessarily i mean i'm praising them so there's not really a lot to swear about i mean i just you know as somebody who spends their life sort of basically going through the motions every day to sort of like figure out exactly how we're gonna man you know not, I'm, okay right so today we have to contend with x y and z and now i'm gonna have to go and act like i'm just a normal person do you know what i mean i love it when you find people i was, I was just reading up about like Stephen. Varvel, is that his name? He was a radical queer artist in New York in the 70s. And then before him, there was Jack Smith, who was a radical queer artist in uh, the late 60s. And then, you know, you have Hot Peaches, who were actually a, a radical queer drag outfit in New York. Some say that the only reason that they did it was so that they could dress up in drag. Who knows? There's a weird, there's this weird crossover when at the end of the Coquettes, like the beginning of the end is basically hibiscus. So they've been they've been performing in San Francisco for probably not even that long at all, like a couple of years. They meet in this um, squat. So the idea, the very idea that you know your existence is uh, living in a, a building for free and creating a community there. You know, tick. It's like so many queers would would want to do that. And I, I don't know about over there, but you know, certainly here. This idea of, of, of creating a queer community and having a commune is, is really coming back. People are really kind of reacting to it. And I think as much as anything, it has as much to do with the sort of response to the heteronormativity of gay culture these days. Mm -hmm. And whereas once this idea of becoming equal um, and getting equal rights would, would be fantastic. And isn't it great? I mean, on a certain level, yes, it is. But it's so conforming to heteronormativity. The very idea of getting married is something such an anathema to myself and my, you know, my boyfriend. It's like, that's not why I'm queer. I'm here. I'm, I'm queer because I don't stand for any of that, you know, mm -hmm. any of that institutionalized bullshit, you know. And I, I think, from, you know, the, the communes that existed in San Francisco uh, yeah. in the late 60s and early 70s, it yeah. was also about not only just rejecting societal norms and kind of yeah. the straight world in every sense of that word straight Absolutely. in terms of sexuality but also in terms of you know being kind of well, adhering to money. the supposed norms um but it was it was also 
about these kind of socialist ideas of taking care yes. of each other and pooling exactly. resources and exactly. you know, having one commune that was responsible for food yes. and one that was yes, responsible that. for childcare and yes. um, all of those kinds of things and helping people to kind of yeah. get by. Um, yeah. And that idea, I think, in... Living on food know, stamps and sharing them out, dividing right. them out. Yeah, and uh, right now... They all come out of a trunk, it was all kind of shared. Mm. And when they started performing, you know, they didn't want to be paid. They wouldn't. They didn't get paid because they didn't believe in money. Mm-hmm. So they had this really kind of spurious relationship with the theatre that they were in. They were packing it out every week, charging. And there was this big controversy because, like, they you know they were charging two dollars a ticket, which at the time I guess was quite a lot of money. Mm. And you can see, I mean, this is on, on Wiki. You can read all about it. It's all there. It's hilarious. And there's a wonderful book as well, which has the history of it. But when they started performing, they didn't, they didn't, wouldn't take any money. So when they, when the beginning of the end came, when Hibiscus sort of left under a bit of a cloud, but then they were, you know, had, had really kind of secured their, their footing as a showbiz troupe and, uh, you know, attracting the big name audience members. And, and, and they were invited to fly over to, to New York to, to perform. But in the meantime, just prior to that, there was this whole thing about, well, okay, well, we need to start paying each other. We need to start getting paid for these things. And, mm-hmm. and so that, it was odd because what I find really fantastic and fascinating is once money came into the picture is actually also when it started to fall apart, mm-hmm. you know, and as much as, as much as, of, of course, it's fraught with all kinds of other activities, you know, the, the, the excess, the, the flamboyance and the drugs and the partying and, and the exhaustion. But it's really interesting when you kind of sort of see how it started to dissipate. And, you know, some of them went on to be, well, I mean, uh, Sylvester, for one, became a very successful singer. Uh, Divine was involved with them right at the end as well. You know, so some of them went on to be really kind of established performers. But like just this, the idea of, that utopia, you know, and how difficult it is to really sustain it. Yeah. And, you know, like Hibiscus branching off and forming the Angels of Light and ha- yes. still keeping kind of the original ethos saying he wanted them to be free. Well, he wanted to be. Because just, I know earlier. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And performing for the joy of performing and, you know, exactly. providing that experience to people rather than making money. And exactly. the people who stayed and were the coquettes were trying to make money. Exactly. Tried to make money, but you know, none of them really knew how to put together a money-making show. <laughs> and I think that's one, you know the big part, uh, a big part of why the uh, show failed when they took it to New York is that yeah. it was like this thing that had been flying by the seat of their pants, and yes. um, exactly. everybody just kind of like the joy of expression, and it was all a bit ramshackle, and that's what people yeah. wanted and expected in San Francisco. And in New York, it's in like... New York, they wanted a finished yeah. polish. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Again, it sort of adds another dimension to that queer journey. So, you know, when you're starting out in, I don't know, that business they called show, or it's so reassuring to find something like The Coquettes, which is all about the entertainment. It's purely all about the entertainment, you know, like you say. And for me as a performer, that was really interesting, to actually be able to say, fuck the notion of structure and how, like, you know, you should conform to, oh, no, I should go to performance school, I should go to drama school, or fuck that, just do your own thing, but for goodness sake, say something. And unfortunately, I feel like now we've kind of gone back to the beginning where now there's going to be this whole new generation of young queens and queers and trans or whatever who don't necessarily know about this history and will find it, and it'll be, again, it'll be like the first time ever, you know, anybody ever talked about it. I, I think... Also, remembering radical queer artists yeah. who were real trailblazers like that. Yeah. In, it's, it's not just about, I mean, it, it definitely young people don't 
do a good enough job or are not given no, enough opportunities to really experience the about... history of queerness and queer art. Exactly. Um, exactly. But there's also, about... as you said, this this push, the commercialization of queer culture yeah. and in particular drag, that yeah. the public image of drag now is yeah. drag race. And Absolutely. that's a very specific idea oh my of God. what drag is. Um, and that was the thing, you know, living in London, I, I always found the coquette's idea of what drag is fit much more with my experience of London drag than it has right. with American drag in general. You know, there's, yes. it, there is a spectrum, but it is much yes. more about a polished performance, about, you know, makeup yes. being but perfect. I, and it felt looser and more relaxed in London than it does here. You see, I think also, I mean, the other thing is, oddly, despite our profound conservatism historically, we do have a history of pantomime. Mm-hmm. And you know, drag, in, in that sense, Shakespearean drag, almost, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a time when women were allowed to be on stage. So all of these characters were played by men in some form of cross-dress. From that vantage point, the history of theatre, I think it wasn't yeah. as much a taboo. It wasn't like doing something transgressive necessarily, because as you said, there were no women. And so yeah. the men had to play these roles. But also there wasn't as much of a focus on illusion that, uh, you know, mainstream American drag is about the this beauty illusion about men trying to transform themselves into yeah. not necessarily realistic uh, versions of women, but like heightened yes. kind of cartoony versions of women. And yeah. historically with theater, it was like men playing these roles, but I don't think there was ever an idea from those audiences that they were supposed to completely be able to suspend disbelief and think that these, you know, the roles were being played by women, like everyone yeah. understood that they were men. And I think that kind of informs contemporary British drag as well, that it's like less about perfecting the illusion. I mean, it does, again, it runs the gamut. I know uh, British drag queens who definitely do fit into the kind of RuPaul mold. Oh, yeah, no, for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, some of them have got something to say and they're really good at what they do. Others don't have anything to say. And that's sort of what bothers me, Mm -hmm. especially, you know, in this context. I mean, I think that going back to the core of this, which is like what inspired me about the Coquettes, I think. It's about creating this this alter. We touched on it, you know. This this idea of like create wanting to create a utopia that doesn't conform to the world around you. And how do you navigate that? And how do you navigate that with a bunch of people when inevitably you're going to have to deal with things like money? And I think that for me, there's a really there's something very quintessentially queer about escaping into your imagination and creating a reality. You know, it's sort of inside it, if you, if you will, and or maybe creating a sort of nucleus of that, maybe in your house or your intermediate circle. But certainly in your mind, but also in the work that you produce. Mm-hmm. You know, I think you've got like people like Jack Smith who was making films, and that was all kind of very draggy, and that was really early. That was like in the sixties, seventies, and then you've got like this, this guy Stephen. I mean, you've got the Coquettes at the um in in the seventies um doing doing their thing. Mm-hmm. Yes, we need to have that. Uh, magic and wonderment in our lives. That was one of the reasons, again, why visiting New York was great. It was, I mean, terrifying in terms of urban regeneration and all of that sort of stuff, but also how the, how there is this sort of timelessness um, about some of the buildings and some of the locales, and thank God some of the venues are still there. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, more so here than uh, in London, the city, yes. at least for now, seems to be doing a better job yes. of keeping gay venues open. Yeah. Um, or at least opening new venues in different areas when the old ones yes. close. Yeah, I, I think I can see a, a really clear 
through line from the Cockettes to your work as well. Again, you know, I think what really kind of brings us together is this sense of like complete sort of real kind of like non unrepentant nonconformism in any dimension you know and whether that's having a beard when you're doing drag and because I think that then you also then you know you start creating the algorithm it's like well what is drag what is gender if I have a beautiful beard when I'm doing beautiful drag does that make me less feminine than somebody who is doing full you know RuPaul dare I say fishy drag I can't bear that term by the way I find it really kind of misogynistic passively misogynistic and quite outrageous no I think that you know you've got to be clever than that and and gender is so much more clever than that and I feel like people like the coquettes really really trailblazed that stuff because at the time it would have been even more difficult to do that and that's also what i get huge pleasure from like thinking back to you know mm-hmm. to be a non-conformist in that time would have would, would not have been easy yeah the idea of non-conformity but also about your identity being yours you get to choose yeah. Yes. When when you're talking about gender, the ideas that are, you know, traditionally, stereotypically feminine or masculine or what, whatever elements of gender yes. fit you, yeah. you get yeah. to take them and do whatever you want yeah. with them. And that yeah. means, you know, people like yourself yeah. and Johnny Wu and yeah. um, John Sizzle and Ma Butcher yeah. having beards and yeah. mustaches, but also sometimes wearing dresses, sometimes wearing trousers, sometimes having makeup, sometimes not. But also um, just looking really dynamite and super beautiful and mm-hmm. uber feminine. Yeah. You know what and I mean? very, I, very confident, just like so yeah. comfortable in yeah. your own skin and, yeah. you know, b- being clear that it's like, this is me. This is, th- this exactly. is. Um, As as much as as when you're performing, there is a bit of, you know, character, there's ideas that are being developed. It's not just like, this is what you wear when you're sitting at home, but um, that the the way you perform is an expression of yourself. Yeah, exactly. Uh, And I think it's, you know, I think you can never say that enough. And I feel like even that in itself has become a bit of a cliche, like with those sort of like warm well. I mean, again, I'm not trying to constantly dig RuPaul, but, you know, the fact that whole part of that, you know, part of that program is this kind of backstage breaks where it's like, you know, I'm so blessed to be on this platform. This is what I was supposed to do. I never dreamed that I would be here. Did a little, uh, and it's like, really, you know, really? Could you not like set your mind free a little bit and maybe loosen up that corset and really let yourself go, you know? Yeah, and I don't know if this is still the case, but banning trans women from being on the show, I think oh, maybe God, all he of that. recanted That's, that. But, absolutely, um, and again, this like third grade blooming misogynistic, you know, misogyny mm-hmm. that yeah. is completely allowed to just, you know, and then apparently, uh, you know, we're the ones who are being bitchy because we're, we're, we're not allowing them to be the people that they want to be. It's like, well, you know, it's that. No, no, sorry, that's not what it's about at all. Yeah, we're we're that, all together. We are all we're all weird and we're all queer in our own way. That is kind of it. So don't mm-hmm. judge me. I ain't judging you. What I'm saying is, you don't have to be misogynistic or rude to anybody else. But it's also that uh, when uh, RuPaul was getting tons of shit for having a segment about she male, you know, yeah. that kind of stuff, and when like Tranny Shack had to. Um, yes. Change their name That's, and all, all of those things. The reaction, it kind of I, I know this is a, seems like a, a strange comparison, but it reminds me of like this interview that um, or th- there was a, a moment with Jerry Seinfeld going on about the PC police and how he can't perform at colleges anymore because people just, yeah. you know, tear his jokes to shreds and uh, yeah. won't let him say what he wants to say. And he told this like very 
you know, boring joke about how everyone flipping through their phones, you know, swiping constantly, they look like a French gay king and that people gave him shit for that joke and were saying that it was homophobic. And his response is just like, oh, you can't say anything anymore and blah, 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 blah. I've always told jokes like this and you guys just don't know whether it's funny. And I would say less than being offensive like i'm not really even offended by that it's just not funny and it feels really dated and like the times have changed you have to as an artist you have to be aware of you know taking the temperature of the world and culture and politics um and that your words have consequences at the same time i do feel that a lot of people are super sensitive Mm -hmm. yeah and and, i mean i know it's it's something that does go both ways but uh yeah, in this in this particular instance, I mean, like with RuPaul, where yeah. the idea of not saying shemale anymore, or um, of allowing trans performers on the show, or whatever, it's just like, nope, these are my rules, and this is the way things have always been, and that's the way they're going to stay. Um, and yeah. I wonder how that's going to work out uh, when the UK version launches. I don't know. I if, know. Um, I just. Ugh. Yeah, but you know, there's a huge, there's a huge, there's a huge audience. I mean, for conventional, I say conventional drag. That's sort of, you know, that sounds quite dismissive. Mm-hmm. I don't in that sense, but do you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. that whole, I am a man dressed up as a woman. I have a funny pun as my name, and I lip sync songs that you know were being lip to lip synced to twenty years ago, and we're still lip syncing the same songs, and we're still you know, using this old-fashioned, slightly derogatory language as we speak, and it's all about cock jokes. I mean, you know, it's, yeah, great. You know what? The floaty boat, fantastic. Go crazy. It doesn't interest me. Uh, And I think also maybe, like, more in a provincial context, it can be more appropriate, perhaps, and can work then. But even then, I still have problems with it because, you know, I think that, Again, it's about challenging the status quo. And like, whilst we have these rights that have come to us right now, they could at any moment just completely elude us and be taken away and swept under the carpet without even, you know, missing a heartbeat. And I feel like there is a lot of, there, you know, there's a lot of not being even vaguely aware of that. This, this sense of entitlement is so all pervasive, I feel now. And um, that worries, you know, worries me, which is why you need to understand your queer history, which is why you need to understand how people emerge and how also they disappeared, where they go to, where you come from in this, um, which is why, you know, hibiscus, I salute you. Yeah, um, I also thought it was absolutely amazing that his mum performed with the Angels of Light. <laughs> Um, yeah, that she was like a, a member, and in that documentary you were talking about, she's like featured quite a bit and just yeah. talks quite fondly about him and his work. Yeah, and I, and I love lovely. that. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I love that. I seem to recall it bringing tears to my eyes. Mm-hmm. But again, that's what I love. About it. I mean, the film is really worth a look. I think just mm-hmm. even as sort of as a story. I mean, it's documentary style, but it's really. Great. Like I said, you know, I don't want to kind of spoil it, but I already have sort of. It doesn't necessarily have a happy ending, but that's also part of the journey. You know, that's also like the moral of the tale, which which I love. Great. I think that is a a solid chat. If uh, if you ask me, do you uh, you feel satisfied? 
I feel very satisfied. It's nice to talk about them. I haven't done that for a while. Um, if people would like to find you and find out more about your work, where do they go? Well, they can go to the website, which is timberlina.co.uk. Timber as in tree, T-I-M-B-E-R-L-I-N-A.co.uk. And then on the Instas and the socials, it's at sign Ms. Timberlina, M-S Timberlina. Yeah, pop That's in, great. say hi. Wonderful. Um, and I just wanted to say, actually, also, sorry, without kind yeah. of going on about it, it, definitely that idea of, you know, moving away and setting up shop and doing your own thing really inspired me to move out of London and live where I live, you know, by the sea, down mm. south in a small town and can you and make that shit work. You know what I mean? Make that shit work. Make your life work the way you want it to. Don't allow, you know, don't feel like you have to subscribe to everything that's going on around you because there are other ways to do that. Granted, it's feels like it is getting harder and harder but there's always if there's a will there's a way for mm-hmm. sure yeah and sure. i don't want to keep harping on about drag race but there <laughs> definitely like i i enjoy it i think that there's a, a place for that but yes having uh i think it's part of something bigger you know okay right yeah. so now you graduated from rupaul's drag race now you have to learn the history of queer performance you know what i mean yeah, like that. part of the joy of queerness is, at least to me, the truly limitless expression. Agreed. Um, and uh, yeah, finding space for people to yeah. express themselves, Indeed. whether it's with drag or any other kind of exactly. performance or exactly. you know any other outlet to express themselves totally in a totally free manner, no yeah. limitations and making sure that there's space for all different forms of expression and it would be great to see something like drag race that's done for yeah a, a now, broader apparently there is something drag. apparently there is something i was talking to a, a performance artist called ruby tuesday who's adorable uh we just did a gig together last weekend in lancaster which is a provincial town and i should also say that i run i co-run a platform called mothersruin.co.uk you can find us there and we are a queer performance outfit we we put on Sorry, this is the self-puggy bit, but um, I, I, I kind of need to mention it. Uh, you know, we, we go out of London. We go to, like, more provincial places, and we support queer artists. We now work more remotely with them, which is great. Technology can be a wonderful thing. We work with artists remotely. We then find a theatre near them, and we put on a show, and we invite them to come and bring their stuff to it. But we have a very strict rhythm, and we make sure that you have a polished piece that you can bring on the show. And again, I think I've sort of pulled that from the whole... If you're going to do a show, make it good because, you know what I mean, it's got to be consistent wherever you go. And thank you, Coquettes, for that piece of inspiration. But where was I going to go with that? I can't even remember where I was going to go with that. <laughs> Look at me digressing again. Uh, but it was it was something about, oh, my God, I can't remember. Oh, no, it's completely gone. I beg your pardon. But anyway, yeah, if you happen to be in England and you're looking for something, you know, if you've got work, get in touch with mothersruin.co.uk. Yeah, it's about thinking outside of that box, about thinking outside of... Just being a drag queen. Oh, I'm a queer artist. I'll do drag. I'll do lip syncing. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more to it than that. And that was another thing. I mean, again, this is just anecdotal, speaking from my own personal experience of drag shows that I've seen here and in London. Yeah. But in London, it was much more about kind of developing your own, using using your talents, not about trying to cultivate the talents that you were expected to have, but using yes. your natural talents to yes. develop a performance. And using um, your experience, I think, also part mm, of that. Yeah. yeah, which is really creates really amazing work. And I think a lot of work is missed because of the conventions and the usual trajectory of getting into that. You know, it's like the great thing about queer performance is it does fit in somewhere between this kind of like bar-like club night spectacle and... A sort of theatrical making, you know, the actual kind of stenographic creation of, of a theatrical piece. And again, if you haven't got, if you don't have that initial training with it, with a kind of just 
being space, you know, being aware of the space that you're in. How are you going to do that? What am I going to do with the lighting? How is the sound going to work? How am I filling up the space? These are quite simple questions which can very easily, can really inspire you to then start thinking in a whole different way about how you're going to make, uh, you know, how you're going to make a piece that reflects your experience and yourself as a, as a queer artist. And I feel like right now it's like you either have to, you kind of do the draggy route and, you know, oh, pick me, pick me. I want to be on Instagram and I want to be on a club and I want to stand on the stool and, you know, I don't know, put pins in my arms or something, <laughs> you know, or... It's like, oh my goodness, I'm going to have to go to third school and then create something super theatrical. Like, yeah, I think maybe you're right. Here, there does seem to, certainly in the last, certainly, you know, over the last 10 years, there does seem to be a much broader spectrum of queer performance. I'm sure people in New York might argue with that because obviously New York's been a hotbed of that for the last couple or few decades. That's yeah, um, yeah. Um, I, I, I think. Um, it does, you know, really run the gamut here. I just feel like mm. you have to go a bit further afield in New York outside right. of like gay bars to be able to yes. find drag shows that are not um, conventional yes. drag. And again, this is just a broad generalization. I'm sure you get tons of <laughs> shit about it <laughs> on Twitter well, or whatever. Yeah. But uh, and I was just going to say, yes, so Ruby Tuesday was saying that there is some kind of, there is some sort of alternative drag race thing in the annals of some channel or YouTube, uh, YouTube channel or spectacle or online spectacle. For the life of me, obviously, I can't remember what it's called. But yeah, but you know, people are doing stuff. And I also feel like, you know, YouTube and stuff does create this element of democracy it's just the bloody notion of celebrity gets in the way of everything mm -hmm. so the whole idea of creating something with meaning with meaning is lost because you're spending so much time just creating an image and getting that out there 24 7 that no one's got anything to say you know and then of course we're supposed to be present and in the moment which means that we justify being in the now doing this bullshit when actually what we should be doing is maybe taking a little bit of time to reflect on how we got here and like how it's a very precarious place that we, we tread right now. Mm. You know that, I know that, and you I'm terrified of what's going on politically in this mm. climate, not just this country, but in the whole of the, you know, European Union. Mm. Uh, and of course you have the same thing going on in the States. Yeah. So it's a funny old place that we're in, it's a funny old world, so it's really good to get out of the history books and just see how things came and went mm. and make sure that doesn't happen again. Yeah, and have uh, a, a clear picture of how fragile and yeah. tenuous yeah, the, the rights that yeah. ha have been won are. Yes, exactly, um, exactly. And I, I think, sorry, and again, to harp on about that point, what that film said to me was like, oh my God, the fragility of doing something incredibly wondrous and bonkers and amazing. But the fragility of that, you know, I, I just find that story is great. It's not something that you look at and put up on a pedestal. Do you know what I mean? It's not like, I don't know how you perceive a pop star to be that mythical status. We have mm. the whole story and the whole story is, is a, a whole true story. It's, you know, it's kind of Game of Thrones, isn't it? You know what I mean? People died. Dragons came. Flames happened. Things like that. <laughs> yeah. Strange chemicals occurred and outfits for days. But anyway. Oh, good. Thank you for that. I, that's good. I got that out off my chest. That's great. <laughs> Yes, yeah, it was uh, it was very enjoyable Good. and uh, informative. I hope people who are listening have yes, learned so something. Too. Well, I don't normally go on like this. Adam gave me specific permission to do that on this case. <laughs> Usually, no. I just do vacuous, you know, shamelessly entertaining performance. Great. Well, thank you so much for uh, for talking pleasure. to me. Thank you for having me. Really fun. That's great. Yep. Likewise. Right. Take care. Okay. All the best. Hopefully, our paths will cross. Cheers. Take care. Bye. Thanks. Bye.
Wasn't that lovely? Thanks again to Timberlina for the fun and informative chat. Sorry for bitching about RuPaul so much. I do actually love Drag Race, but sometimes it's good to throw a little constructive criticism out into the world, right? So that's what I did. Okay, recommendation. I'm really into years and years on HBO, and now this is the part where everyone in the UK is like, actually, it's a BBC production, and that's old news because it's already finished in Britain. To which I would reply, leave me alone. I live in the US, and it's on HBO here, and it's only just started. Anyway, I digress. It's so good, but super fucking stressful. It's basically all of your nightmares for the future coming true. That sounds really depressing. But it's got a lot of lightness in it as well. The acting is incredible. Emma fucking Thompson is in it, for fuck's sake. I've already mentioned on this podcast that I will watch her do anything. She could read her receipts from the grocery store, and my review would be a riveting journey. Five stars. Uh, Rory Kinnear is excellent in it, too. So is Russell Tovey. Okay, Actually, the whole cast is great, so just watch it. Sometimes I feel like I'm recommending too much HBO stuff, but it's not my fault. They have quality programming. So, that's it for this week. Please, please, for the love of God, follow me on social media, at Spark Parade. Please, in the name of all that's right and good, rate the show five stars wherever you download or stream, and leave me a nice little review, please. Also, why don't you send me some art recommendations? I want to hear about all the stuff you're enjoying. Comment or DM me on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and your recommendation might just appear in a future episode. Is there anything more thrilling than that little possibility? No. No, there is not. All right. Take care of yourselves. Until next time. Bye. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.